This podcast is brought to you by JDRF Australia and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Andrew Gagan, and welcome to the T1D Tune-In. T1D used to be known as juvenile diabetes and is often regarded as a disease affecting just children, but they never grow out of it. In this series, we'll hear from adults with type 1 who are leading inspirational lives. We'll also talk to the brilliant researchers working on exciting new treatments and striving to find a cure. Understanding and empathy. As a patient, that's what you want from your healthcare provider. Our next guest has an intimate understanding of type 1 diabetes. He's a clinician, scientist and educator and he's been living with type 1 for more than 40 years. So we are starting to get to what would be termed an artificial pancreas where technology is able to take some of the burden away from the individual living with diabetes. Gary Kilov is passionate about clinical and community support for children and adults with chronic disease and in particular type 1. And he's leading by example. Leadership recognised with his honorary title of Associate Professor at Melbourne University. He's currently practising in Launceston. Gary Kilov, thanks for joining us on the T1D TuneIn podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, you have a philosophy which I love. You say you were handed a lemon, so you decided to make lemonade. Tell us what you mean. Yeah, so I have been living with type 1 diabetes um, well into my fourth decade, and I'm also a medical practitioner, and I thought that Living with type 1 diabetes puts me in a unique position to understand the challenges and the vagaries of this condition. And so if I combine my personal experience with my medical and clinical knowledge, hopefully I can turn that into something positive by being able to support other people traveling a similar journey to my own. How has your understanding of the disease changed over that time? It's changed enormously in that scientific advancement has been remarkable and, 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 and accelerating. We are you know, learning at an exponential rate and some of the things that we understood to be true, we, we, we now understand are perhaps partially true or not true at all. And this uh, accumulation of knowledge has led to a better understanding, which in turn means better management. In parallel with the basic scientific understanding, of course, have come improvements in service delivery, in medications, in uh, delivery devices for insulins. And we're really on a threshold, a very exciting time when we are starting to see, you, you know, the great power of technology being involved in uh, making the, the lot of the person living with diabetes uh, much better. So we learn more, we understand more, and that then is translated into better treatments, which in turn means better outcomes for individuals living with type 1 diabetes. But in terms of understanding, there, there are still a lot of misconceptions in society, of course, and I, I know you have another well-worn phrase that you use that until you get it, you don't get it. Yeah, yeah, look, absolutely. And, uh, and I think that the, the concept that many people have is that as long as you give insulin, you basically fix the problem. So what's the big deal? 
Well, there are a whole lot of other things that come with living with diabetes, and it's been described as a, a job that somebody got, don't want, didn't apply for, can't resign from, no leave, no break, and it really is a full-time job just managing blood glucose. Every meal is an exercise in mathematics. It's carb counting, it's calculating insulin doses, it's um, factoring in what the sugar is doing at the moment, whether it's trending up or down. So all of this is happening in the background, you know, a little bit like watching the duck on a pond uh, gliding beautifully, but underneath it's frantically paddling away uh, just to keep going. And I think it's that unseen part that many people who either don't have type 1 diabetes or, or don't live with somebody with type 1 diabetes just don't really understand. And, and of course, diabetes is not unique in that way. Uh, I often use the example that uh, whilst I was present at the birth of my children, I could never really understand what my wife was going through. I knew it was not fun, but, but I'll never really get what it's like to you know, go through the pregnancy and go through that delivery. So, so I understand that there's nothing special or unique about diabetes in that respect, but um, it can be quite challenging and, and difficult for people living with type 1 diabetes. And, and, and many people talk about the loneliness of coping with this. So even within a family where people observe the individual with type 1, they still don't necessarily understand the full burden of it. Some do, but as, as you quite rightly said, I think there are many misconceptions within the general population as to what it's actually about and, and what it's like to live with. And you say that there are a whole lot of things that come with it, of course. Now, you also have celiac disease, which is obviously a, a daily challenge. That's absolutely right. So, so type 1 diabetes, for those who don't know, accounts for about 10% of the diabetes population. And this is an autoimmune condition in which the body's immune system, for reasons that we still don't fully understand, attacks the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. And the genetic predisposition to type 1 diabetes is part of a, a broader autoimmune susceptibility. In other words, people with type 1 diabetes have a higher rate of a number of other autoimmune conditions. So around 5 to 10% of people living with type 1 diabetes also have celiac disease. There's a lifetime risk of about 25% of autoimmune thyroid disease. And then there's a whole range of other autoimmune conditions, such as pernicious anemia and various forms of inflammatory arthritis and so on, that may occur at higher rates with people with type 1. So as you quite correctly say, the type 1 is really just the starting point, uh, because in addition to maybe some other autoimmune conditions that might be prevalent, over time, people, individuals may develop complications. So diabetes predisposes individuals to, to kidney disease, to eye disease, to a range of other things. And so if, some, if one is unfortunate enough to have those as well as the underlying diabetes, then uh, there is that burden of other morbidity or illness, if you like, that has to be contended with as well. And Gary, the number of people diagnosed is increasing. Now, initially, genetics was seen to be the determining factor. Has that changed? So that's really a very insightful question because we have seen this rise in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. 
And in type 1 diabetes, what we see is that over time, the high-risk genes are somewhat diluted, suggesting that there may be an increasing effect of environmental factors, and as I say, as yet not fully identified. So there is some really interesting work going on in in terms of trying to identify individuals at risk before the diabetes presents clinically and, uh, and, and the international and Australian initiatives to actually start the detection of diabetes many years uh, before it actually presents. So looking for antibodies, looking for for markers, genetic uh, markers. So there are, there, there are a range of things that come together that would flag someone as being at high risk. And as I say, we don't understand all of them. And for type 1, the focus is always been very much on children. Of course, it was has always been known as juvenile diabetes. In your view, how is that transition from childhood to adulthood managed, particularly as far as treatment is concerned? So the name juvenile diabetes has essentially become outmoded because uh, many people with type 1 diabetes, myself included, actually are diagnosed in adulthood. So it's a roughly a 50-50 split between those diagnosed under 25, those over 25. It varies uh, according to different locations in the world, but certainly a substantial number of individuals with type 1 are actually diagnosed in adulthood. So the term juvenile diabetes really is a misnomer. And as you quite rightly said, it used to be a term used. We now talk in terms of type 1 and type 2. Gary, in fact, I I understand that there are more people aged over 80 with type 1 than there are under 15. That's right. And and this comes as a surprise to individuals. Of course, when you think about it for a moment, as people with type 1 are, are living full and hopefully healthy lives, they, of course, survive into old age. And so it's not only the ones that are diagnosed as children, but also added to the cohort are those who are diagnosed in adulthood. So it's just a, a reminder that if somebody is uh, in their senior years, it does not preclude them from having type 1 or developing type 1 at any time, essentially, from the cradle to the grave. So, Gary, as a doctor, you're seeing more and more adults present with type 1. Are GPs equipped to care for someone who presents? So I think that often type 1s, and and they sometimes called LADA or latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood, are misdiagnosed as type 2 just by virtue of the age at presentation. And we sometimes see a slower onset, so not the same sort of catastrophic acute presentation that we might see in children. And so this can confound clinicians who are perhaps not used to seeing a lot of diabetes. So if we think about type 1, it's around a 120,000 individuals with type 1 diabetes, which would equate to more or less four per full-time equivalent general practitioner. So a little little bit of arithmetic. There's about 40,000 GPs registered with APRA. Turns out to be about 25,000 full-time equivalents. So if you you do the mathematics, it's about three to four type 1s, each full-time equivalent. So not seeing a lot. So it's not high on the radar, I guess. And uh, certainly when they're seeing uh, more type 2, so as as I mentioned, 90% are going to be type 2s, there is that propensity, if you like, to default to 
what's commonest is what I'm seeing. So I do agree that sometimes people do get missed. They do fly under the radar and that, that can be a concern. So a lot of this comes down to education, of course. Now, you're a, you're a founding member of the Royal Australian College of GPs Diabetes Specific Interest Group. Why did you establish that? Diabetes is, of course, a high prevalence condition, and we felt that we needed a focus in terms of providing education at a primary care level. So there are professional organisations for uh, specialist diabetologists. There's a professional organisation for diabetes educators. But really, until we had set up that primary care-focused uh, specific interest group, really there was nothing to guide, if you like, the primary care practitioner, which is which is a little counterintuitive because most diabetes, and, and now I'm talking about type 2, of course, is managed within primary care. So it seemed as though there was a, a need to fill that space. So we still see a bit of a dichotomy between the management of type 2 being often seen as, as the territory of primary care, unless you know, it's very complex, and type 1 really still being the preserve of specialist services. And, and, and I think that's actually quite appropriate because, you know, th there is somewhat more complexity in managing type 1. And of course, if you're only seeing, you know, a handful, then you don't necessarily develop the expertise, uh, even with the best will, you know, you need to be actively involved in, in whatever it is you're doing to maintain skills and develop skills. Now, that's not for a moment to suggest that GPs don't have an absolutely essential role, because there are a whole lot of other things that, as I think we spoke about earlier, that accompany type 1 diabetes. So there may be psychological issues, there may be pregnancy planning, contraception, you know, other comorbidities. So, so primary care has a very, very important role to play. And I think we wanted to provide some support and some guidance in terms of the best management for diabetes generally. And uh, even though type 1 is going to be a small part of that, of course, that's a very important part too. Yes, so you have that specific interest group, but as well as the primary carers, Diabetes Society of Australia. Actually, the RACGP is the Royal Australian College of General Practice, and so by definition includes general practitioners. But we know that really managing diabetes is not a solo sport, it's a team event. And what I mean by that is that we need many people involved to get the best possible outcomes. So it might be the GP, it might be a specialist, an endocrinologist, it could be a diabetes educator, a pharmacist, a dentist, a psychologist, and all of these individuals can play an important role in optimizing the outcomes of diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. And so the Primary Care Diabetes Society is basically a not-for-profit organization, no membership fees, and invites all healthcare practitioners who are involved in the management of diabetes and includes those that I mentioned, but includes others, podiatrists, optometrists, and anybody who would like to be part of the family of diabetes care. Unfortunately, medicine tends to be siloed into subspecialties, but medical conditions don't present that way. They present with a broad spread of other things, as I mentioned, such as mental health issues and other issues that arise 
just by virtue of what happens through the, the journey through life. You mentioned mental health there, Gary. Society generally now is investing more in mental health. Is that the case with diabetes? Every year there's a bit of a theme, if you like, with Diabetes Day and Diabetes Week and, and mental health was part of it this year. So we know that all chronic disease, diabetes no different, is associated with roughly a doubling of the burden of mental health issues. And again, not surprisingly, because in addition to everything else that somebody with type 1 diabetes lives with, all of life's challenges, in the background there is diabetes and whatever that brings with it, as well as an additional challenge. So it's no surprise that we see individuals uh, having higher rates of depression. Diabetes distress is, is a unique condition in its own right. It's basically feeling overwhelmed and pretty much just uh, beaten down, if you like, by diabetes itself. That's a, a unique uh, mental health issue that needs to be identified, recognized and addressed because we know that that is a significant predictor for poorer health outcomes. So if you're feeling absolutely burnt out with managing your diabetes, it's going to make it much, much more difficult to manage it effectively. And can that diabetes distress lead to depression? And And is there a, a particular age where you think that it manifests itself? I, I guess perhaps if you, if you were diagnosed when you're a child, once you become an adult and you're independent, perhaps there's a realisation that this is a, a disease you must manage for the rest of your life, and that can be obviously very overwhelming. So I think that there are many factors that contribute. So some people are more resilient than others. You may cope perfectly well until there's a particular setback, uh, which may be diabetes-related or, in fact, completely unrelated, but you just reach a tipping point where your coping mechanisms are, are just overwhelmed. And so, you know, I think everyone is vulnerable to some uh, potential mental health issues. I, I mean, all of us, uh, the entire population, it just depends on what the vagaries of life deal out to you. But when you're already carrying this burden, uh, you are, I guess, closer to the point of being overwhelmed. So I think it can happen at any stage. You mentioned, I think, something really uh, vitally important to this. Uh, th there is a diabetes meme, and that is, you know, I uh, didn't think that one day I would wake up unwell and never get better. And that really is very confronting. We hope for a cure for diabetes, but realistically, there's certainly nothing that's immediately on the horizon. Gary, in Australia, people with diabetes, the are relatively fortunate in that they can readily access treatment affordably. But that's not the case in many developing countries. So you've decided to do something about that. So, yes, you, you, you're absolutely right. I think um, we don't mind having a whinge about Medicare or about the health system. But in reality, we have one of the best, if not the best, medical systems around the world in terms of equity and universality and everybody can access good quality medical care just about anywhere in Australia. Uh, so we are enormously, enormously fortunate. In other countries, people have to self-fund and that can be enormously expensive. Uh, and even in first world countries where you would think that people would be privileged, but there are within those countries individuals who really can't afford even the basics. And so insulin is something that we take for granted, and certainly 
life without insulin is impossible for someone with type 1 diabetes. Um, We all rely on either multiple daily injections of insulin or constant infusion via a pump. So if you cannot afford insulin, that is a death sentence for you if you have type 1 diabetes. And unfortunately, in, in some African countries, the leading cause of death for someone with type 1 diabetes is not being able to afford insulin. An awful tragedy. So uh, as you quite rightly said, I uh, have done a very tiny, tiny bit to contribute to an organization called Insulin for Life, which is a charity that uh, collects insulin uh, that is in date, that is uh, obviously still what we would be happy to use here. And, uh, you know, that gets shipped to other individuals with type 1 diabetes uh, through uh, local services that do an outstanding job, a heroic job in distributing the insulin and, and supporting individuals with type 1 diabetes who otherwise would, uh, would struggle greatly to uh, just get the basics. And we're not talking about highly sophisticated or leading edge stuff. It's just enough to survive. So, yes, yeah, so, so a, a very small contribution on my part. Technology uh, is facilitating improved treatments every day, and uh, that's leading to a better quality of life. What are you most excited about? So I have to I have to declare that I do like things that go bleep and you know buzz, and uh, so I am a little bit of a technophile. But that aside, the great advances in therapy are the greater availability of continuous glucose monitoring. So most people still do finger prick testing to check their blood sugars, and and that's, of course, still useful. It it does guide treatment, but there are some shortcomings, and one is that it only gives you a moment in time. It tells you what your blood sugar is now, but it doesn't tell you where it's been. It doesn't tell you where it's trending. Continuous glucose monitoring, these are little devices that have a sensor that's implanted under the skin, and they last between 7 to 14 days. And they do a reading every five minutes, and that is communicated either to a smart device, uh, such as a phone, or a dedicated reader, or in somebody who's using an insulin pump, it'll actually communicate directly to the insulin pump. Uh, And this is a very exciting space, which I'll I'll expand on in just a moment. But with uh, continuous glucose monitoring, an individual can really track where their glucose has been and where it's going. So if they're heading too high, they can actually intervene before the glucose or sugar, and and we use the terms interchangeably, uh, actually tracks up too high. Or conversely, if it's heading too low, somebody can intervene before they have what's called a hypoglycemic episode, so a low blood sugar, which can uh, impact people's functioning, you know, motor vehicle accidents. If somebody's driving, uh, there can be quite nasty outcomes. So continuous glucose monitoring has been shown to mitigate that And as I mentioned, if you happen to have a pump, an insulin pump that's infusing insulin over time, and this information is fed from the sensor to the pump, we now have pumps that will actually adjust the rate of insulin infusion according to what's happening with the glucose. So we are starting to get to what would be termed an artificial pancreas, where technology is able to take some of the burden away from the individual living with diabetes. Now, it's early days yet, and these 
pumps are certainly far from fully automated, but given the rate of technological advancement, this will just get better and better over time. So yes, uh, I agree with you. Absolutely. Very exciting time in terms of some of the improvements in type 1 diabetes management. Gary Kilov, it's been fantastic to hear your views. Thanks so much for joining us. And thank you so much for including me. If you'd like to find out more about JDRF Australia or get involved with their various initiatives supporting the Australian T1D community, visit their website, jdrf.org.au. For all the latest updates on T1D research, search JDRF Australia on Facebook or follow them on Instagram under at JDRFAUS. And keep an ear out for more episodes in our T1D TuneIn series, wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Until then, I'm Andrew Gagan. Thanks for listening. Views expressed in this podcast are broadcast for informational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice. Consult your team of healthcare professionals for health or personal advice that is right for you.